Today I'm speaking with Eric Kaufman. Uh, Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London. He's written several books on demography, including The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, and most recently, White Shift. Um, Eric, demography is an extremely controversial area of inquiry. Um, how did you first become interested in it? Um, well, this really goes all the way back to uh, my my master's and PhD thesis, really. Um, you know, I, I guess biographically speaking, you know, I grew up a lot in Asia as a Canadian. I became quite interested in the idea of national identity. Uh, and then in as a as a as a youngster in Vancouver, which like a lot of Western cities was undergoing quite rapid ethnic change, I certainly was aware of the uh, the, the idea of ethnicity and, and how it it sort of changes. So in response to demography. And so all of those were kind of formative influences, I guess. Um, and being of, of, of mixed sort of ethnic racial background myself, all of these things sort of prompted an interest in things around national identity, ethnicity, but also the demographic component. So I was kind of very interested in how uh, particularly ethnic majority groups, because I think that's the key unit of analysis, uh, not so much the nation state, which can adapt to really any sort of level in many cases of, of migration and so forth. But it's really the ethnic majority, which is takes time to sort of absorb and to, it's much more slow movement. So I was interested in that response of ethnic majorities to migration, to demographic change. Uh, initially looked a bit at Canada and then looked at uh, the United States. Uh, and of course, more recently, I've expanded that out to look at Europe as well. Mm. So I first became acquainted with your work uh, in university. I did a a unit called ethnic conflict, I found that most of the readings would sort of focus almost exclusively on cultural things such as uh, uh, the media. So when they're trying to explain an ethnic conflict, they'll talk about media broadcasts that were popular during the time. They sort of failed to address something that I considered uh, important, which was the primordial aspect of ethnic conflict. I came across one of your papers and I found that you you did a good job, but you were the only reading that was suggested, which <laughs> recognized that there was both a cultural, political, but then also a sort of primordial element to uh, ethnicity, race, and then also ethnic conflict. So I guess uh, the first question might be, why do you think um, this field of inquiry has a hard time dealing with the um, perhaps more primordial nature of ethnicity. Why does it have a hard time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I think a couple of things. First of all, there there are some sort of minor distinctions, say, between uh, what's called primordialism, which is about evo essentially evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. And it's the explanation that Pierre Vandenberg and authors like that who argue that we tend to cooperate more with people who have more genes that are in common with us. And there have been, and I think, quite valid criticisms of that model. Um, but then there's another uh, sort of uh, thesis called ethnosymbolism, which was propounded by my supervisor, Anthony D. Smith, who, who very much argues that, well, it, you know, if you look at ethnicity, a lot of it is about attachment to myths, symbols, and memories. Mm. And, and, and whereas the dominant school uh, tends to emphasize political economic elites, or industrial functional processes that tend to kind of shape society from above. And I think the reason why that appeals to a lot of 
uh, intellectuals who study nationalism and ethnicity is they're in many cases trying to deconstruct uh, nation, uh, the category of nation. They are in some ways trying to deconstruct, let's say, ethnic conflict, often for a good reason. You know, wanting less ethnic conflict, you want to get people not to take it so seriously. And so I, that's, that is perfectly understandable. But there is also a bias, let's say, within the social sciences, which are very kind of cultural left leaning yeah. uh, towards emphasizing the constructedness and contingency and fluidity of identity, the way this is all in a way uh, tricks, uh, kind of a false consciousness that the media and elites can can play with your mind. And that, that sort of blank slate kind of approach, I think, uh, or, or not blank slate, but certainly political and economic approach has just been extremely popular amongst a lot of uh, academics. Um, but there are there is an, a significant minority who kind of cut against the grain, particularly of an older generation of scholars. And, and Anthony Smith, who's passed away, sadly, some years ago, um, a few years ago only, but he was sort of a leader in kind of trying to say, actually, we've got to take uh, these myths and symbols that people are attached to psychologically quite seriously. Mm. Yeah. So Pierre Vandenberg, it's funny that you mentioned him because like, um, I don't want to compare the two of you, but two of the authors that I did find the most interesting on this topic was yourself and also Pierre Vandenberg. I, I think that his theory of, um, essentially the, his idea is that, um, the, the ethnic group is an extension of, of the family or the kin group. And what you have at play is sort of nepotism. So in the same way that a, a father will favor a child because of the maybe genetic similarity, you'll have countrymen favoring one another because of <coughs> ethnic similarities. Um, in terms of critiques of that, I actually was thinking recently, like um, as much as that is true, even nepotism within the family can actually be quite a weak driving force. I'm, everyone has um, cousins, right. cousins who they're not that close with. The idea that, you know, I do, I do struggle to think that the genetic similarity would lead to, um, you know, encourage altruism that intensely because even within families, you find that those nepotistic bonds can be rather weak. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, and, and I still contend yeah. with it. I, well, what I would say is that whilst there is a legitimate critique, you could not dismiss it outright. And what I found in my course was any sort of um, acknowledgement that there was some truth to what the primordialists were saying like uh was dismissed i actually um it was basically dismissed as fascistic a fascistic way of thinking that that there was some element of um yeah, yeah biological truth to ethnicity um yeah so perhaps we can just talk about pierre vandenberg a bit more well yeah i mean i was going to say by the way that, that evolutionary psychology which is sort of underlying vandenberg's reasoning mm. and you know, if you listen to people like Steven Pinker and, and and the stories they tell about the 1970s and the kind of accusations leveled against anybody who was trying to explain, even, you know, for example, schizophrenia, which we now know is, in fact, heavily hereditary, mm. making that argument would land you with the label eugenicist or racist. Or, you know, so, so there's a very quick slippage between uh, any acknowledgement of, of heredity and mm. the charge of being eugenicist and Nazi racist, et cetera. So, so that, I think that reflects really, again, what we'll talk about later on, which is this concept creep 
uh, of terms such as bullying and prejudice and trauma and all of these sorts of things would to kind of expand it out of all recognition. Um, and yeah, so the sort of radioactivity around the term racism was simply attaching to a wider set of uh, phenomena, which were not not actually related, but it's because there's even, you know, it's a bit like, you know, Hitler had a had a, uh, a dog. And therefore, if you have a dog, you must be a Nazi. You know, it's, it's, it's almost as ridiculous as that kind of reasoning. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think there, there has been a lot of resistance to heredity. Now, having said all of that, I mean, I think, yeah, well, with Vandenberg, his argument is pretty much that. Uh, the more, you know, like other uh, primates, like other animal species, uh, you know, that we tend to act on the basis of collective nepotism, because if we are defending people who share more of our genes, let's say that means dying in battle is kind of rational from a sort of mm. uh, from the evolutionary perspective, your genes are going to propagate through those who you help to survive in battle because they share so many of your genes and blah, 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 blah. So that's kind of that is sort of the reasoning. Uh, behind Vandenberg. And I think one of his arguments would be saying, you know, if you have a clash between two kinds of appeal, I think what he calls a type one appeal on the basis of your economic self-interest and a type two appeal on the basis of sort of shared relatedness, the type two appeal will always win out. Now, I think actually things are a bit more complicated in Mm. reality because, you know, I think it's true that if you have two equal, equally powered ideas uh, of tribe, and one of them is closer to your you know, genetic makeup, and that makes an appeal to collective nepotism. Then that will win. But the but in reality, in most cases, one or the other appeal is going to have more cultural, political, economic power behind it. So, for example, it may be that Oriental Jews and Arabs share more genetic content than European Jews and Oriental Jews, but uh, there is no question that, you know, in terms of the socialization power that the uh, Oriental Jews are exposed to, there's no question that the Jewish uh, is much more powerful. And therefore, even though they may be genetically closer uh, to the Arab, that's not going to trump it in, in, yeah. in an actual battle. So that's just all that's all I'm saying. It's kind of a tiebreaker, but it's not as decisive, perhaps, as we might think. But it does matter. It's um. I actually think that in the book, you said something kind of similar, which was like, if you take maybe a Saudi Arabian um, Islamic fundamentalist and a Pakistani Islamic fundamentalist, um, the, the fundamentalists are going, and then maybe you from in Saudi Arabia, well, I don't know, don't know if there's any Christians in Saudi Arabia. I'm sure there's one or two, <laughs> but yeah, the, the Saudi Arabian um, is going to feel close to his countryman, but he's going to feel much closer to um, the fundamentalist, right? The religious uh, affiliation is definitely going to be more powerful than the um, genetic one. And that's just to say that though these things do exist and they are powerful, they're perhaps not as powerful as was assumed. But what I dislike is just to go from that and completely dismiss a way of thinking it seems to me that there is a good deal of truth to what people like Pierre Vandenberg said. And maybe it's not as, like you said, powerful as they, they thought. Um, I think that it doesn't be acknowledged that they were onto something. Um, yes. Yeah. And you don't want to be dismissing things just out of ideological prejudice. So, so mm. if somebody just made a careful argument and, and came up with some examples and said, okay, well, this is why it, it doesn't work or whatever. I think that's fair. I, I think, but it's the, Kind of as you're right, that kind of knee-jerk rejection, which I think is very unscientific. 
And it's worth pointing out that this is not some, uh, this may sound like to the people listening, this may sound like some abstract academic debate, but it's really not because it has real world implications. If ethnicity is simply something that is constructed, well, all you need to do is get the culture right, get education right, and you won't have any ethnic conflict. But if there is something true to what Vandenberg says, um, then it's reasonable to assume that you will have ethnic conflict regardless of how correct the culture is, right? There will be, this will rear its head. Um, so there is a reality to this that needs to be um, tackled, you know? I think that that's just worth pointing out to the people who are wondering, what's all this about? Um, <laughs> but perhaps we could um, segue into discussing your book, which was fantastic. Um, I read it quite some time ago and I scanned over it before this conversation. But I really think that in terms of um, clear-headed analysis of a very controversial topic, you pulled it off incredibly well. And I think that you're one of the few people, particularly uh, particularly uh, when the book was first published, you're really one of the few people who understood what was going on, I felt. And you had the evidence to back it up. So um, that was a, a great well, book. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> So usually I, I notice in the talks you've been on previously, they begin by discussing Trump, so on and so forth. I thought we'd flip that on its head. And maybe what we'll talk about at first is a wasp identity. Um, so people often think of the founding fathers as uh, civic nationalists. Um, and I think that you suggest that there is some truth to that, but they were also um, to some degree ethno-nationalists, right? People like Jefferson considered themselves Anglo-Saxons, and um, they viewed Americans as descendants of the Anglo-Saxons who had fled, like, you know, Norman England. Um, can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of what of my interest was to sort of look at the emergence of an ethnic majority mm. in the U.S. and how how that was articulated. And you can see in, in a lot of the founding fathers, a lot of these weak myths, which actually originated in England, where some of these myths about the English being, you know, the English Whigs being carrying that Anglo-Saxon tradition against the Tories with the Normans who who, who formed the British dynasty, right? Um, and, and and similarly in, in Jefferson uh, and in Washington, and, and if you if you read the writings of a lot of the of a number of the founders, and of course Jefferson was was probably the most prominent amongst them. They talked a lot about the Americans being. Uh, descendants, not just ideologically, but genealogical descendants, according to uh, Jefferson of the early Anglo-Saxons. He talks about Hengist and Horsa. These are early Saxon chiefs from whom we claim the honor of being descended. Um, and so you had this myth of ancestry. And then you also, of course, had the emphasis on Protestantism. Mm. And so you had these uh, more ethnocultural symbolic dimensions that were present at the, uh, well, with the creation of the United States. And those were reinforced uh, when you had the first major wave of Catholic migration from Ireland in the 1830s and 40s, particularly the 1840s. Uh, the sort of what they call, what historians call nativism, which was the sort of Anglo-Protestant reaction to that, was not something that emerges out of thin air. Because a lot of the, uh, some analyses, if you were to just read a few selected passages of Tocqueville or you know, they talk about this new nation of you know, everybody's from somewhere else, and this is totally brand new. Now, that did exist, and those passages do exist. So it's really, a, a, you know, you've got the universalist passages, but at the same time, you also got the very ethnic passages where 
And then as we get into the 19th century, writers like Emerson were saying that the Americans were more English than the English mm. because they were the true, you know, this Anglo-Saxonism really becomes powerful in the mid 19th century, going right through, I mean, leading historians um, were writing about these the sort of what, what were known as the kind of the Teutonic germ theory. This idea of Anglo-Saxon origins was kind of central right through till the end of the 19th century. And you can look at Teddy Roosevelt's his his writing very much embodies encapsulates this notion. Um, so yeah, there was that kind of uh, you know, it, like other ethnic groups, you had an ethnic uh, majority in the U.S. and you had it in a lot of the settler societies. You had it in Canada as well, right. even though it was had a somewhat different articulation. It, it was always quite clear that there wasn't a kind of an ethnic majority. Now it was assimilative, and and there were there were debates between those who felt it should be more assimilative, or those who felt no, we've got to slow down the the immigration because that's we can't assimilate this quickly. That then becomes the big debate: is over well, can we or can't we assimilate? And by assimilate, they really meant fully become Anglo-Saxonized mm. and and join part of that ethnic majority, and that was. Roosevelt kind of had this idea that the Irish and Germans, who were the main outsider groups, say, and at his time in the late 19th century, that they would more or less be melted into this Anglo-Saxon compound. And that was kind of the view of a lot of writers at the time, this kind of assimilationist, expansionist uh, ethnicism. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that then goes away as we enter into the 20th century. You either get people who say, no, you know, there there is this ethnic majority, but we have to protect it by really restricting immigration and selecting immigrants that match the composition of the population. Hmm. Or you get those who are just pretty much cosmopolitan in their view that, no, this is just we have to be universalist and we have to ditch like John Dewey, you know, Englandism, New Englandism. We have to get rid of it. It's just hmm. one note in a big symphony. Right. So that that's kind of emerging in the 1910s in this new cosmopolitan multicultural formulation that is that is becoming more popular among pluralist progressive intellectuals and which eventually becomes the dominant interpretation i would argue in in u.s elite institutions Mm. Um, so yeah that's just sort of a very potted two-century history yeah well i actually one thing (laughs) i just wanted to quickly ask about that i found interesting interesting was you say that southerners um actually sort of uh, uh, resonated more with with this idea of like Norman ancestry, uh, Norman Cavalier ancestry, which I found interesting because I was under the impression that Southerners were mainly from Scotland and Ireland. So I'm wondering why they identified as Norman rather than sort of Celtic. Well, you have two parts of the South, right? You have the lowland South, which is more plantation agriculture, where most of the slavery was. And then you have the upland South, which so so the upland South was where the Scotch Irish dominated, and they had fewer slaves. And then the lowland South were immigrants from mostly the London, Greater London, or or broader Southern England area, and more of the cavalier type elite rather than aristocrat rather than let's just say the yeoman type i mean these are crude generalizations but uh i think you claim in the book that you know catholics had this sort of like counter entropic quality um they were pretty resistant to wasp assimilation 
Um, when do you think that really that quality started to break down? Because I think you could say that Catholics are an assimilated group now within the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, during the early and mid into sort of, let's say, even into the 1880s, there was this very optimistic Anglo-Saxonism, which said, well, we can more or less melt down and assimilate anybody. And, you know, this very sort of positive, optimistic kind of take on Anglo-Saxon ethnicity. Uh, And that reflected a number of things, including, by the way, the huge uh, emigration. And there was a big population explosion coming out of the British Isles at that time. Uh, And so maybe that was part of it. But whatever it then you know, so the, the, you get the Irish Catholic immigration. There was a view that these immigrants were largely going to become Protestants. I mean, mm. the sense that, you know, because there were a lot of people who were unchurched at the time, you know, a lot of people, it was a circuit rider that would come out and spread the religion. They, they didn't mm. have, you know, built churches that everybody attended. That's not how it worked in, on the frontier. So the view was, okay, there's this fluid situation, and, well, once we religion gets organized, they will more or less melt in and become, you know, take on the American religion. Um, but it didn't work out that way. The Catholic Church kind of got very organized and, you know, built lots of churches, expanded hugely as we move from, say, the mid, well, let's say the 18. 18- 80s through to the 1920s, you, you get a massive expansion of Catholic institutional power. And a lot of these immigrants are going to Catholic Church, and they are clearly not going to become Protestants anytime mm. soon. So that was that was that a contributing factor to the what's called nativism, the sort of anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment that was emerging very strongly in the 1890s through to the 1920s, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which was largely an anti-Catholic expression in northern U.S. states at the time. Um, Then what happens is you get, you know, this stays pretty, you know, the Catholics really don't mix with the Protestants right through till Kennedy's election in 1960. Kennedy's election in 1960 is kind of a turning point. But even at the time, there's almost no mixing. Um, Catholics voted Democrat overwhelmingly. I think it was like 85, 90 percent of Catholics voted for Kennedy. Maybe it was 85. Um, then what happens is you start to see some intermarriage and then very quickly the boundaries break and you get more mixing. And then you get the phenomenon like the Mike Pence, you know, Catholic turned evangelical. That's a, It only starts to happen really as we get into the very recent past that a lot of Catholics are more or less becoming evangelical Protestants. But but it took sort of ironically 100 years after after the people were worried about them not assimilating. Uh, mm. But now there's two things that happen there. And one is, of course, that um, Catholics are intermarrying with Protestants and Jews. And there's also a, a burgeoning popular culture, new forms of music, new uh, consumer products, and all of these sorts of, and, and new narratives around war, and all of these sorts of things forge a new, what I would call a pan-ethnic white group, which encompasses Catholics and Jews. Now, that's not to say that the earlier divisions didn't matter anymore, but they they started to matter less. Mm. Uh, and this this new pan-ethnic group emerges. The only thing I would say there is, though, it doesn't retain as strongly the collective memory of, let's say, Puritans and Cavaliers in Western mm. settlement. And, and some of that becomes a bit attenuated. You do have, so you do have sort of, you know, the Irish looking to some degree to Irish forebears. You have people looking to Ellis Island and their forebears uh, migrating there in the late 19th 
early 20th centuries. So there's so much of somewhat of a fragmentation of the narrative for this group. So it is really more of a pan-ethnic group who's that is united not so clearly by a communal narrative like most ethnic groups, but by elements of culture and and by some you know generally having a shared national identity and not seeing themselves as that different from the standard unhyphenated American, but, but, but not necessarily having a clear ethnic narrative anymore. Mm. So the boundaries expand. It's not simply a case of people being assimilated into an existing ethnic core myth. It's actually a, 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 it is to some degree an attenuation of that WASP group. Even if, even if they didn't adopt Protestantism, you could say that they, they sort of would dress like wasps, they they would adopt their mannerisms and perhaps even embrace the forms of government, right? So like Catholics obviously um, were somewhat resistant to the idea of the secular state, but I think that, um, I mean, they grew to embrace like democratic governance, so on and so forth, the idea of um, a separation between church and state. Um, so even if they didn't adopt Protestantism, you could say that they definitely were assimilated in a way, not so much the wasp core, like you said, but into it, like like you said, this pan sort of this new identity of, of sorts. Um, yes, and and it is worth saying, by the way, that the con, you know, the lead characters in movies and novels and the popular culture uh, tended to be wasp. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the if you analyze something like Star Trek, for example, Captain Kirk is a wasp and and his sidekick um oh what's his name is is irish i'm trying to remember but anyway there's a there's a whole sort of script that was there for a lot of these post-war novels and movies and pop culture mm. and and that that is so to some degree the all-american type the sort of archetype remained kind of wasp um including the president who was always a wasp generally right up to i mean kennedy was the one exception but kennedy had to kind of you know do pseudo waspify himself um so there was still that sort of archetype in a way that, that, mm. that served as a sort of point of orientation and then of course the, you know looking to the founding fathers and that tradition around lincoln and some of that is is of course Im- implicitly imbued with with those uh, wasp characteristics, but but I still think there was something that involved boundary expansion and a new entity emerging to some degree. Mm, yes, yeah, very interesting. So um, I thought we might talk a little bit now. It's it's a bit of a segue into a different topic, but um, you've got a chapter dedicated to a, what you call uh, leftist modernism, and I thought maybe you could just. I mean, you mentioned Dewey before, who's sort of a part of this. So perhaps you could discuss uh, what leftist modernism, modernism, what is it? And um, what are some of its consequences, I guess? Yeah, I, I think I was very interested in the kind of ideology that was sort of opposing um, majority ethnicity uh, in a time of demographic change. So we've really got three parts to the story. One is the Clearly, there were people wanting to to move to the United States. There was demand for labor. So you had the demographic flow. You had also the ethnic majority group. Um, And then you also had this question of ideology, um, of of what form of liberalism uh, was existing in the country. And what emerges in what's really distinctive 
about the 20th century is you get in, what had occurred prior to the 20th century was uh, the people used to talk out of both sides of their mouths. You'd have uh, Emerson say, you know, the United States is the asylum of nations, Cossacks and Polynesians and all everybody into the pot. Right. And then he then in the next breath, he'd say, well, you know, actually, uh, the American character is just the English character extended mm-hmm. and, and the Anglo-Saxons are, you know, so we talked about the Anglo-Saxons. Um, and so you would have what, what was known, I guess, Emerson called double consciousness. You'd have people juggling the cosmopolitan and the ethno-national at the same time. In the 20th century, one group decides, well, we're going to ditch anything around the ethno-national and we're going to go just straight for cosmopolitanism. And John Dewey and the liberal progressives, Jane Adams, starting in the mid-1905 to 1910 is the beginnings of this, the settlement movement. Their view was that the Anglo-Saxon was um, kind of pl- going to play the role of the the Jew in Reformed Jew- Jewish theology as leading everybody to a kind of promised land and then dissolving themselves in this new cosmopolitan global universalist construct. So that was the that was the kind of political theology, the, the eschatology around this that Dewey and others envisioned, uh, that, you know, this was the group that, uh, yes, they they began America, but they were going to lead people to this, um, to this new cosmopolitan post-ethnic uh, utopia. Um, and that, that infor- informs their Americanism. Now, in the 1910s, you then get a built on that, a kind of strand that says, well, no, actually, the immigrant groups aren't just going to fuse into this new universalist utopia. They are much more interesting, much more expressive uh, than the wasps. We wasps, uh, we wasps are trying to ban alcohol and prevent people from dancing, which were elements of truth in that critique. So you had that kind of real attack on the kind of rural Protestant majority, rural work, which was still majority rural at the time, as being you know unlettered. Uh, unexpressive killjoys and not being interesting compared. And so what they wanted Randolph Bourne as the key figure for the new New York uh, modernism that was emerging in the 1910s, which was to say, well, we wasps should, should get rid of our culture. We should be cosmopolitans, but immigrant groups must retain their culture because they're more interesting. The worst thing is for them to assimilate. He called them assimilated uh, immigrants, cultural half-breeds. So he wants, so this is the origin of this idea of what I termed asymmetrical multi- mm-hmm. multiculturalism. Ethnicity for minorities is great. Ethnicity for the majority is awful. Um, it was still, the spirit was very much this idea of modernism, which Daniel Bell, who's a formative influence in my work, um, he defined as sort of the rejection of tradition, constantly seeking novelty, immediacy, uh, I would add to that diversity. So this sensibility of rejecting a kind of ethno tradition or religious tradition and moving towards this sort of novelty and diversity, mm-hmm. um, that becomes the sensibility really in Western art and exemplified in the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village in the 19, uh, well, 19, let's say 15 to about uh, 1918 uh, period. And then in the 1920s, you get another generation like Sinclair Lewis and others who really are making fun of middle America is, mm. and, and talking negatively about the wasp uh, sort of mainstream as, 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 and so repudiating their culture to use Scruton's term, this idea of cultural repudiation is, mm. is, is very powerful in letters in the 1920s amongst what I would term the left modernist intellectuals. They tended to be on the left, 
some would some would go towards socialism some would reject socialism but only a few and that that mainly in the 1930s uh, but the template here is really one that sort of puts a lot of emphasis on modernism, that is the rejection of tradition, but with a leftish tinge of being concerned about equality to some degree, but not to anywhere near the same degree as we see after the 1960s. So a little bit of concern, but the main thing was artistic modernism. So they would not have understood concepts like cultural appropriation. Because mm. um, that's what they would have been doing, right? As in their the way that, that they would have been culturally appropriating all the time in their art, right? That would have been considered uh, the highest form of flattery in a way, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And Gauguin and the South Seas and, and you, you know, going to see black jazz and, uh, you know, Greek dancing and all of this was, yeah, they were into cultural appropriation. They were obsessed um, with Harlem as well. This was a, a place. Yes. Like, yeah. 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 Anything that was sort of different from the the wasp mainstream, which they derided, mm. would would be interesting. That would be it could be European immigrants. It could be the Jewish uh, ghetto on the Lower East Side of New York. It could be uh, Harlem. It could be any of these things. And then if we and that sensibility going forward to the nineteen forties and fifties with the Beats, Norman Mailer, and others, it would it could be Latinos or Puerto mm. Ricans. It could be Afri- African Americans and so on. Um, that was interesting to them and uh, different and expressive. And that's what they they were drawn towards. Um, but it implied a kind of rejection of the square, what Mailer would call the kind of middle American square culture. You know, that was sort of rejected. Um, but but this sort of sows the seeds when we want to talk about when we want to talk about critical race theory and its anti-whiteness. Uh, I don't think we can really explain that without going back to this anti-waspishness of the beginning of the 1910s right through the 1950s that that sort of say lays down the seedbed for what then becomes a fairly natural instinct which is to bash the majority group and particularly the mainstream uh, working rural majority as being uh, you know prejudiced or or in some ways uninteresting in, in the in the early days, it was more they were uninteresting and, and not expressive. And later on, it became they were oh, they're oppressive and domineering. Mm. That's more the, the influence of the 60s and Marcuse and the kind of left side of the. So the cultural left, this idea that there's an oppressor and, a, and an oppressed and we need to equalize them. Um, and we have to reduce the harm the majority is doing to the minority. That leftish element comes out of socialism, which is then. In, in various waves, intellectuals are leaving orthodox communism and, and migrating over to become kind of liberal socialists. Yeah. And it's that sort of liberal socialism, that hybrid, which forms the dominant ideology today. And, and, and you can see its roots coming up through the 20th century, uh, particularly taking off in the 60s. But but the roots go way back, right, to to the 19. 19- or 1900s and 1910s. Um, but that ideology I encompass as left modernism. It's a bit like saying you have, liberalism was always concerned with the rights of uh, excluded groups, let's say women, you know, women's suffrage, and you had votes for African-Americans and all of this. So you had, liberalism was the group, was the ideology mainly concerned with identity groups, not having their equal rights. Socialism had no, very little to no concern about any of these identity groups. They saw all of that stuff as bourgeois. Mm. Uh, it was about class, and it's only as you get into the you know post World War One uh, that that you start to, and particularly in the nineteen thirties, 
you start to get this deflected away from just talking about class to, well, no, actually some of these other identity groups being included as victims. Um, and that really becomes popular in the 60s. And so that it's like plugging in into the blank cartridge space of communism and socialism. You remove the class cartridge and you stick in the identity cartridge. And that's where we are, really. Yeah, because Marcuse or whatever, uh, he, I haven't, I haven't read much of his work, but I've listened to some of his uh, lectures. And the impression I got was that he, he was very disappointed almost with the working class in the West and the intellectuals inability to mobilize them. And he recognized that like these new groups, like these disenfranchised groups, whether they be women or yeah, the disabled, the unemployed, I guess what Marx would have called the lumpen proletariat to some degree, like that's another group that he would have been um, looking towards. He saw them now as like the new vehicle of revolution. And I think that, I mean, he obviously was, I think that he's considered like the philosopher of the new left. And I feel like those events, we very much live in the shadow of them. Um, and that's very much I, in your book. You mentioned, I think that like, you know, those baby boomers, like they then went and uh, went into university roles and they definitely had those ideas permeating in their mind. Um, so I thought now we might, cause one of the things that's very impressive about your book white shift is the amount of graphs, numbers, evidence, detail, data that you draw on. Now, I don't know if you know these numbers off the top of your head, but I thought maybe you would tell us a little bit about um, some demographic um, change. How is the West um, going to look perhaps in 150, 100 years time? Can you just tell us about these trends? Yeah, I mean, we have a pretty good idea. The first thing to say is demography is the most predictive of the social sciences. You can look at, say, the under five population and project it forward uh, 40 years and, and, and say, OK, what is the median voter going to look like, mm-hmm. at least in, in socio-demographic terms? And so, yeah, um, it's not the whole story, but essentially the picture is something like this, that the U.S., Canada and New Zealand will be so-called majority minority uh, around 2050. Uh, now we can quibble, and, and, and it's an important debate over what, who, or what is going, is going to be considered white. And that I think is, of course, that's very much the second part of my book. Mm. But just in terms of the kinds of terms, the way we define those categories now, uh, if majority minority around uh, the middle of the century. Uh, maybe Australia will be slightly later than that, but not much later. Maybe a little bit later, and then. Uh, the main immigrant receiving countries in Western Europe, the end of the century, they'll become a majority minority, let's say. Um, and those are actually massive changes if we consider the fact that, you know, in Europe, in around 1900, most Western European countries had roughly one to two percent of their population born outside their borders. Um, you know, just to give you a sense of the scale of the change, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, Europe, Britain's always been a land of immigration and whatever. Well, the numbers were very small. I mean, the Jewish immigration into Britain, for example, in the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries, at the most, it was five to 10,000 a year mm. in a population that was not actually that much smaller than it is today. It was a bit smaller, but not massively smaller. And so the impact was just far, far less than 300,000 a year, uh, year after year after year, right? So so uh, the scale of the change is massive. Um, now, you had, of course, ethnic minorities defined uh, 
on religious grounds, on other grounds. So, you know, ethnic diversity to some degree, depending on the country we're talking about, did exist. Uh, but nothing on the scale that that um, that we're talking about now. Um, and so, yeah, I think really the politics of our century is going to be defined by majority populations' response to this change and psychological experiments which tell people, hey, the U.S. is going to be, you know, 50% non-white in 2050. Now go answer these questions. Right? So if half the people see a paragraph talking about the the change in American demography and half don't, and then you ask certain questions. You know, support for Trump mm. and conservatism simply goes up when people read the people who read those passages versus the ones who don't. Uh, and so the impact of this um, concern over demographics is very clear in the experiments. I've done them in Britain, where if you actually tell people about the impact of various migration levels on the ethnic composition of Britain in, say, 2065. Um, if people read about that, they become a lot more restrictive in terms mm-hmm. of numbers. They're willing to trade off lower numbers. and you know, They're willing to, to take a less skilled influx if it means lower numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we have lots of evidence that these sorts of this demographic threat really does um, really does sort of affect people's support for populism. And I think that's sort of what's going on. Uh, and and if you really get into the numbers, as I have, you know, in terms of how do you decide, you know, how do you identify who's going to vote UKIP or Trump or Le Pen or whatever, almost all of the strongest predictors have to do with something like a question, you know, things in, in America were better in the past or your views on immigration, uh, how important that issue is to you. It's It's nothing, almost nothing to do with What's your income? Are you unemployed? Uh, you know, all of those economic things have very little to do with support for populism. And and grudgingly, I think, I don't know about grudgingly, but I think academia has started to recognize mm-hmm. that actually the data is extremely powerful. And it's very hard to argue the case that this is somehow an economic thing. I want to talk about uh, populism. But before we do that, um, yeah. when you talk about demography, when you so much as mention demography, there's a tendency for people to become suspicious instantly and go, well, why do you care about that? Why does that even matter? Right. And I think in um, your book, you highlight a a number of reasons people should care. Now, the first one that I want to talk about is the tension between diversity and solidarity. Um, You uh, do a good job of explaining how these two things are often in conflict. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, there's been there's been a lot of uh, research now on uh, diversity and solidarity, and I think you know, even within academia, if you take the quantitative literature, um, I think there is pretty much an established view, whether people want to actually come out and say it, that at, certainly at the local level, a more diversity in the local level is correlated with lower um, solidarity. And we, we can measure solidarity in different ways. Would, you know, would a neighbor return a wallet to you? Do you think they, or, or even if you drop wallets, some of them have done these experiments, you know, how many of them get returned? Do you trust, uh, I'm trying to think, um, yeah, trust in your neighbors, would you borrow things from them? And all of these kind of measures, the greater diversity you have, the lower the solidarity. It's experienced most in, interestingly by sort of white residents of the more diverse areas. They become a lot less trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
minorities also become somewhat less trusting, but not massively so. Uh, so there is definitely in terms of the local level, uh, we, de- we see pretty powerful evidence of this diversity solidarity trade-off. Now, the question then becomes, well, what about the, at the national scale? Mm. You know, nationally, you can see, you can look at a country like the U.S. and you can see that the foreign-born shares, that has risen and fallen. The degree of polarization in Congress seems to have risen and fallen. Mm. Now, there were many other things going on. We can have a debate over uh, were there other factors other than this diversity that were going on uh, that led for to cohesion in Congress rising and falling. But I mean, there are some good reasons to think that the diversity could lead to um, lower de- a lower degree of solidarity. I mean, one of the ways that could be expressed is reluctance to contribute to a welfare state, mm. especially if the recipient group, or, or let's just say ethnic minorities, if they are disproportionately amongst those receiving assistance and public goods and the majority group is disproportionately contributing, which is the case, let's say, which is more the case in the United States and in, in continental Europe, let's say, than it would be in Australia and Canada. Yeah. Um, so, so in those places, you t- you see a relationship between a reluctance to 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 fund public goods, public projects, and and, and higher diversity. And there's been studies of uh, U.S. cities, for example, uh, that show there's there's less spend. I think Alessina and colleagues showing there's less spending on useful public services like garbage collection and more on. Uh, you know, crime, uh, jails, et cetera, uh, in more diverse cities. And this isn't just about African-American. This is also about other groups as well. Um, And so, yeah, there is this sort of tension, I think, between diversity and solidarity. Now, interestingly, I think another way this is playing out is is because we've got the, the role of ideology injected into the conversation. It's not actually so much because the classic view is, well, if you have ethnic diversity, voting will fall along ethnic lines instead of along, you know, standard left right lines. Actually, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is in many cases um, polarization being most intense within the white population, Mm, not not between whites and others. Mm. And what that's caused by actually is still related to diversity, but it's a second order relationship. So Mm. the diversity is entering. Uh, you you have different groups coming in, the, the population becoming more diverse. But within the white population, you have one group who um, who don't want that diversity to be increasing as great as much as it is. And you have another group who are comfortable with that level or who see it as a moral imperative and who see the, the group that don't want the diversity as being reprobate. reprobate. Mm-hmm. So you now have a kind of value conflict opening up within the white population, which which to some degree is reflected in, in other groups, but to, to a much lesser degree, actually. I mean, African-Americans are not anywhere near as polarized as white Americans. Uh, and so you're getting this kind of growing polarization, and it's not just the U.S., it's, it's also happening in, in other countries. Canada, where I'm from, uh, very much is reflecting this pattern where we're getting a polarization. The political spectrum is very much polarizing along ideological lines in a way it never was, uh, even going back five, ten years. Um, and so that's kind of the interesting trend we see out of this. Um, and what what seems to be the case is that you have within a population, people of different psychological dispositions, broadly one group who likes stability and order and another group who who are more open to difference and change. And what diversity does is it reacts with that 
psychological difference. And so the people who want stability and order say, you know, no, we they were they're the ones voting for populists who want to slow think the change down. And the people who who are the sort of difference and change types, they are, if anything, reacting against the sort of stability and order types, creating the polarization. So I think that you and I, so this is obviously related to what you just said. I was going to ask you about um, democracy and diversity, but you just covered that. So what I'll ask you about instead is another thing that you mentioned was that um, civil war tends to be more likely in diverse countries. There is a caveat, though, to that, but perhaps you could speak about that. Well, in terms of violent conflict, the the optimum configuration is is what's called ethnic polarization, where you have two large groups. Mm. Um, if you have lots of groups, that doesn't seem to. I mean, it, it does lead to a somewhat higher um, chance of uh, violent conflict, but that'll typically happen at a local level, where, mm. where you'll have, say, in Nigeria, it, if you get down to a very small geographic unit, you will then have two groups let's say, two major groups going, you know, or their coalitions. Uh, so, yeah, there is a generally somewhat higher chance of conflict. But the bigger, you know, globally, the, if we look at global relationships, the big relationship is greater what's called ethnic fractionalization or ethnic diversity tends to lead to simply slower economic development. Mm. Sub-Saharan Africa has very high ethnic diversity. Oh, yeah. has, and that is one of the reasons it's, it's very difficult to know Who's going to get the hospital? Who's going to get uh, the factory? All of those questions become politicized along ethnic lines. And so that impedes uh, economic development. At least that's a major theory for why East Asia developed uh, more quickly than Sub-Saharan Africa when they had similar starting points after World War II in terms of um, economics, is, is that East Asia is simply far more ethnically homogenous. Um, so, so yeah, it's more through this question of trust and public goods provision and economic development, I think, that that's more the relationship. Hmm. Uh, although if you do, you can get um, violent conflict, especially where you have um, two significant size groups. Yeah, well, the economic angle is interesting because it, it sort of comes back to the tension between perhaps democracy and diversity, where it can, in a, in a balkanized country, people can begin to seize power. And instead of acting in the nation's interest, they act in their group's interest. Um, and they, they don't really see themselves as one people. So they, so they act in a selfish way, um, which is obviously um, a problem. It's interesting, though. So what you're essentially saying is so so a homogenous country is less likely to go into a civil war. A, a, a very extremely balkanized country is less likely to have a civil war, more likely to have local conflicts, but slow economic development. But really, um, the situation that's the most likely to end in violence is when you have these two groups, which is not a situation that the, the, the Western countries will be in, where you have like two groups um, who end up yeah, fighting. Yeah, I think that there is enough fragmentation that, that the condition is more one of super diversity, what, what, what we would say, many different groups rather than one group. Now, you might make a case that the the pan-ethnic collectivity around Islam, you know, it, it is projected to be, you know, Muslims are going to be 20% of, let's say, Sweden in, in 2050 and, and close to that in Britain. But, of course, though that Muslim group does contain, you know, many different types of 
you know, uh, Iraqis and Pakistanis and, and groups which don't have a ton in common. And, you know, they don't intermarry. It's it's harder to see them fun- functioning as a cohesive unit, mm. um, and then of course you've got other groups, Hindu and 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 uh, Sikhs and and, and mm. Afro Caribbean. So you have a number of groups which are, which are not don't really have anything to do with with Islam. So no, I, I wouldn't say that you know these sort of classic civil war scenarios and secessionist scenarios. I don't think that is is likely. I don't think actually violence. It doesn't look right now like we're going to see significant violent conflict along ethnic lines. Mm. However, what what seems to be occurring is more um, of an ideological polarization, like as in the United States, mm. that is has as its root cause in you know indirect way diversity. That is the rising diversity and the response of one part of the population to it. Yes, and then the response of the kind of liberal progressive type person white person to the populist person is what's creating this uh polarization in country in, in a number of different countries so it's ideologically the diversity is ideologically polarizing is is the way i'd put it yeah that makes sense okay so perhaps we will um finish off by talking about populism and its future so you've already said this you're gonna have to repeat yourself but um yeah. the 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 explanation. So obviously two that you have 2000, you have Trump's election, you have Brexit. And I think that you genuinely had amongst the intelligentsia, uh, just shock, right? They, they could not comprehend what had happened. They didn't have the intellectual infrastructure to really, um, understand they were in like a genuine sense of disbelief, but sure enough, after time, after a time, the explanations came through and they they did um, tend to um, gravitate towards this left behind narrative where, you know, you have these people in the Rust Belt, uh, you know, they've been left behind by globalization, they're not employed, so on and so forth. Um, now, this is, I think, probably one of the, probably the most popular, at least it was the most popular explanation for Brexit and Trump. Um, and I think you do a good job of demonstrating that that is not, in fact, the case. So um, tell us why. Why isn't that the case? Why isn't this about economics? Well, because it's quite simple. The, the technique that I use, which is simply uh, statistical analysis, you know, we, we have a survey of, let's say, 25,000 British voters. Um, we can see which ones voted for Brexit and which ones didn't. Let's say it's, you know, 52-48, so 52% for Brexit, 48 for Remain. And then we just sort of do a correlation analysis. You know, what what other characteristics of the individual, what are the characteristics that predict an individual voting for Brexit? I mean, if we know nothing about a person, what's the most useful thing we can know about them to know which way they voted? You know, well, if, if we say they're rich or they're poor, that tells you almost nothing. It increases your chance of getting guessing whether someone voted leave or remain from 50% to 52%. It, 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 it almost has no impact on your ability to guess. Whereas if, if, if you were to say, well, does this person support the death penalty or not? You know, you go from 50 to close to 70, mm. uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, and so your views on the death penalty, which is not an issue in Britain, it hasn't been discussed in politics, it, but, but yet this predicts so heavily, mm. um, you know, whether you're going to vote leave or remain. And that's sort of, 
and insight into the kind of thing that predicts likewise, whether you're going to be a Trump voter or a Le Pen voter, uh, or your views on um, whether things in Britain were better in the past. Uh, that is even more powerful. Or, or And even more powerful than that is your views on immigration, let's say, uh, and particularly whether you think immigration is, is one of the most important issues facing your country. Oh, sorry um, to Sweden interrupt Demo- you, Eric. I just wanted to yeah. quickly, because again, you, you have, you employ like this, you, you got your head around a, a lot of survey data. And one thing yeah. I did find interesting uh, in your book was the extent to which people um, consider this their number one issue. Uh, immigration is the number one issue across almost the entire European continent, right? Oh, number one or number yeah. two. Yeah. Well, well, what happens is that as you get an increase in uh, migration into Europe coming from, um, well, from across the Mediterranean, it's starting in 2014 slowly, but increasing to the peak of the migrant crisis in 2015, Um the share of Europeans saying immigration is the top issue rises and rises and it eventually reaches something like 40 percent or, or maybe a bit above. Um, along, you know, as that what, what we call what we would call the salient. So the majority of Europeans had always said we want less immigration, something like six and 10 Europeans had expressed that view. But someone might say, yeah, I want less immigration, but immigration is my number five issue after healthcare and the economy and, and, and whatever. Uh, once you get this increase in numbers, uh, you then get an increase in the number of people saying, no, it's my number one or number two issue. Yeah. So that it's not that the attitudes change. The attitudes, people who said that I want more immigration are the same level. Very few of those people tipped over, even with the migrant crisis, into saying I want less. Yeah. Actually, what it was was the people who already wanted less the issue became more important to them. And that's really what drives populist voting. There have been a number of papers, uh, James Dennison and others on that, that show a very clear relationship. So that is really what explains, I would argue, the the populist surge in Europe um, around the migrant crisis. If you were to look at the 2007-8 economic crisis, there's no effect. I, I think that's a, a nice little natural experiment. The economic crisis, no consistent effect on populist Right, support the hmm. migrant crisis massive effect. Um, and that just goes to show what's really driving this. And I think it's a real mistake to look at maps again. People are looking at these Le Pen support maps and say, hey, well, it's, it's places that are poor. Well, that's actually relatively meaningless. If you have to look at individuals, because um, geographic units are pretty misleading in many ways. Mm. You know, you can look at the wealthiest regions of the United States. They tend to vote for uh, the Democrats. You might think, oh, well, wealthy people vote Democrat. Now I know it's, you know, it's just not, it's not the case. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I find super interesting about this is that the um, sort of, let's call them the, the populist elites, right? The people who lead these movements, they themselves often um, fall victim to this line of thinking. I remember hearing, and I don't know if this is true, but that Le Pen had a Marxist um, economic advisor, right? That she, I don't know how seriously (laughs) she took it, but you notice, I'm noticing increasingly among um, sort of perhaps uh, far-right thinkers that that they almost sort of start to sound like Marxists because they see themselves as the champion of the white working class who's been sold out by, you know, uh, the bourgeois international elite, and they start to talk about things like international capitalism. 
And what they're, they're, they're totally missing the mark. They, they're, they're losing sight of the actual issue. And I think you could say perhaps one of the reasons Le Pen didn't do better in the last election is that she did begin to talk much more about economics than migration towards the end of the election cycle. Um, do you see that, though? Do you um, agree with that? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, you make you make a really good point, which is that, you know, a lot of the populist elites like a Steve Bannon, for example, or, or perhaps a Le Pen, um, you know, they have to they're on the media all the time. Mm. They do interact with the mainstream elite a lot. And mm. a lot of them don't really know the arguments. They can't really defend this idea of slower ethnic change very well. They want to somewhere in their mind, they would what is easier for them to defend is either to say, well, Islam is a threat to women and Jews and, and gays and, and whatever, mm. or, or and civil liberties, or to talk about economic deprivation. Right? Yeah. Because those are those are things which fit quite easily. You're not going to get canceled for that. You're not going to get mm. accused of being a racist for that. So it's much easier to talk about those things, which aren't really those issues don't differentiate the voting base of these parties from the voting base of any other party. I mean, yes, people are concerned, obviously, about, you know, their economic prospects, but that's not what's going to decide whether somebody votes for Le Pen or, or Macron. Uh, very, you know, this is not a major factor. Um, the problem is that they, uh, very few of them have a well art worked out, articulated view of why, uh, uh, of the cultural issue with immigration that isn't based around, you know, Islam being a threat to Western values. It's, it's as crude as that. They haven't got anything more than that. Mm. Um, they haven't, they aren't able to articulate this idea that, you know, you, you might have an ethnic group that is assimilative, that, uh, that the rate of change needs to be regulated, that the rate of diversity needs to be regulated, uh, that this is a legitimate liberal thing to do. Um, they don't seem to use those arguments. They would, they're on, they're more comfortable with these neo-Marxist talking points around global elites, uh, global capitalism, mm. uh, the oppressed working class, they are almost falling into that leftist rut, yeah. which, which is the common response in an age when defending the powerless, you know, talking about harm and equality is just a, is, that's just the idiom that, that yeah. modern, modern discourse in academia and in, in the elite tends to, to, to run on. It's so, it's so ironic because, I mean, one of the talking points of the uh, populist right is that these people are divorced from their voter bases and it's clear that they themselves are divorced from, from the people who are voting for them. They, they, um, and I think what, what you're saying is really important. I think that everyone sort of seeks, whether they admit it or not, sort of elite institutional approval. And what those people are essentially doing, you know, there's this, there's these like, uh, D- what's his name, Dinesh D'Souza or whatever, where he comes out and right. says, "No, liberals are the real racists," or it's, like, know, um, right. or it's like basically what they're doing is they're saying, "No, you know, um, liberals are the real capitalists." Basically, they're trying to say we adhere to your standards more than you do. We're more true to the sort of um, leftist ideals. It's like you're not going to beat these people by being like a, a just an older version of them. And I think that right. uh, your your work, right? I, I mean, um, someone like uh, Zemmour, I get the impression that he is different from Le Pen, where he recognizes why people are voting for him. It's um, 
he's pretty, he, he gets asked, you know, they do these setup situations where it's a sort of like a African migrant who will say, do you want to kick me out of this country or something? And I'm, he, you know, he, he, yeah. So, I mean, um, he seems to be more conscious of why people are voting for him. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but. I think that's right. I think the issue with a Zamor or a Baudet uh, in the Netherlands, it, it, the question, I guess, is, is this one of ethnicity and nationhood and how, how they define what they're going after and how to, how to differentiate it from sort of kind of a white ethnostate type hmm. puritanism, which you get on the far right, right? So you need to have an understanding of, of two things. One is assimilative ethnic majorities. The second is national identities, which include as part of their character uh, ethnic composition, historic ethnic composition, which might be changing slightly, but that's a tradition alongside language, alongside other food and, and sport and all these other traditions. But you have to understand those two layers and be able to articulate both and be able to say to somebody, well, no, this doesn't exclude a black person from being an equal member. Hmm. And, you know, for example, the, the, the vision, one vision would be that eventually they, they or their descendants would melt into this ethnic majority hmm. or, or that, you know, they're bringing, um, or, or that in fact, a lot of minorities also value um, the ethno traditions of a country the, hmm. that they, they wouldn't want those to completely be upended either. Right. So you'd have to be, be able to go down that route and say, this doesn't mean any sort of uh, inequality of treatment or, or exclusion. You have to be able to separate. It's a bit like I try to always go to the example of, of accent. Hmm. Um, you can say that any, you know, any, all accent, any accent is an, an American accent, uh, on the one hand, you know, somebody with any accent can be an American. But on the other hand, it's ridiculous to think that the United States would be the United States if you had people speaking all kinds of accents, right? I mean, there, there has to be kind of some sort of Basis. critical mass of people who speak a certain way. And that's just that's exactly the same point when we talk about uh, ethnicity. You know, there, there, the, the nation is more distinctive if there's a critical mass. It doesn't have to be exactly the same percentage as it was in 1900, but you know, and, and that that's something worth maybe thinking about when you're going to think about the rate of migration into your country. It, it's trying to sort of make that distinction between the individual level and the collective level. And that's very, it's very easy to move, slip from one to the other. If I criticize the National Health Service in Britain, and someone says to you, oh, well, you, you're criticizing doctors and nurses. How, how dare you? You know, I mean, that is sort of the same kind of reasoning. It's yeah. called the fallacy of composition, moving from the uh, level of collective aggregate properties to individual exclusion. And that's kind of the game that's always played. Um, but you got to know that that's the game they're playing and you have to know what the answer is to deal with that. And it's not the case that a lot of politicians and intellectuals aren't going to play that because they don't actually know that game. So... So they wind up giving crummy answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. I think that will change, though. I think that people will become conscious of um, what's really driving this. Now, I don't want to keep you too long because I think we've already been um, talking for a while, but um, I want to get to the second half of the book. The What yeah. is what? I guess we could just, uh, I could ask you, what is white shift, right? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked about sort of white shift 1.0, which is the decline in the um, white proportion and therefore the, the populist 
polarizing politics coming out of that. But White Shift 2.0 is really maybe more optimistic in this, this sort of next century, largely happening late this century, next century, the emergence of a mixed race majority. Uh, just mathematically running the numbers as I I've, I work with a demographer here where we just looked at three groups, you know, um, white mixed and um, non-white for, for England and Wales. And you can see that the white share, you know, the, the mixed share is only about 7%. Is, in 2050, only 7% of the population has a mixed race background. Mm. By the end of the century, it's up to 30%. And then 50 years later, it's up to, you know, 75. And pretty quickly, it's 99. Mm. Um, so this, the story kind of longer term then is one of this mixed race majority population. Of course, the question will be, how do they identify? There's already studies on that. Uh, which would show that sort of the Asian, white, Hispanic, white mixes tend to, to lean more in a white direction. The black, white mixes tend to lean somewhat more in a black direction. But um, I, I think that in a world where the kind of white share is much smaller, I mean, it's already considerably smaller now. I think it's just under 10 percent of the globe compared to 25 percent in 1950. Um, <clears throat> so but but moving forward, it's going to be even, even smaller. And actually, I think that. Whereas now someone who's mixed race, they're comparing themselves to sort of the unmixed, if you like, white uh, group. I think it could well be the case as we move forward that that, uh, that, that mixed race group comes, comes to see itself as the emerging majority and therefore uh, starts to take on the white traditions uh, mm. and fuse with that white group to become the new majority. And and, and I, my, my view is that essentially these mixed race groups will largely – um, draw a line back to those um, white majorities. And, and they, if we look historically, we can see many groups that, like the Turks, for example, yeah. in Turkey, or uh, even most the of their bloodline is. Would you say like Greeks would be another? You go into a, you go into a, like a. <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate, but you go into a kebab store and, you know, they've got an image of Achilles on the wall and they sort of <laughs> as like a direct descendant, even though there's a good chance, like during the Ottoman occupation that their, their families were intermarrying, you know? So that's yes. a, another example yeah. where you can see that they're, they're, they're drawn to this, this symbol of Achilles. Um, and yeah, even though, you know, genetically they're perhaps, you know, 50% Greek or whatever the, they, they, yeah. they still are attached to those um, Greek ethno um, symbols or, or myths or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. There, there's always airbrushing going on. You know, if you go to, if you look at the Jews, you know, they're going to airbrush a lot of things out and trace their descendant back to Abraham and the 12 tribes. And, you know, and that's kind of a standard practice in a lot of groups. Um, the Hungarians have a myth they came from Central Asia, but actually that part of their DNA is, I think, less than 1%. Mm. Um, you know, you have, um, you know, the Greeks obviously absorbed all kinds of different peoples, the Slavs, major Slav incursions, and these have mm. kind of disappeared without a trace so, yeah, that's sort of a common historical process. It's, now, of course, there are periods where, you know, places where demographic change does displace, mm. like the Anglo-Saxon migration did in many ways displace the existing Brit Celtic yeah. Britain uh, substrate. So that does happen. But I think in a case where you're getting a super diversity sprinkled in and eventually mixing in, I just have a hard time seeing that becoming 
you know, what myth would they even gravitate to? But what I think what I think could happen is you will have this ideological difference between the the left and right. Let's say the left having a more multicultural uh, myth of origin and the right having that more ethnic majority. Myth. I mean, that that's it's a bit like Britain in the 19th century. And you had the Whigs gravitating to the Anglo-Saxons and the, and the Tories to the Normans. I think some of that will occur, but I also think that these majority myths and, and symbols will perpetuate through these mixed populations. This is the only, I guess, point of contention I would have with your book, is that I suspect that a uh, culture's capacity to assimilate and absorb um, would very much be dependent upon its vitality. And I think most would agree when you uh, survey, uh, to speak broadly, European or Western culture, um, it does not have uh, the sort of cultural vitality um, to absorb anymore. It's not like, you know, the wasp sort of group that existed, um, you know, throughout American history, which was actually very good at absorbing because there was a sort of confidence that comes with expansion and ascent. And I don't feel like we, uh, you know, that the European Western people have that anymore. And even if you speak to uh, a young uh, Anglo-Saxon or a young Westerner, and you ask them about their traditions, it's um, increasingly common for them to not even have elementary knowledge about Christianity, uh, yet alone uh, Horace or the Anglo-Saxon chiefs <laughs> or whatever, you know? Right. I don't even know. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like that is a potential, and I think you would concede that it's an open-ended question, but I don't know whether the culture has the vitality to absorb and assimilate anymore. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. I think we're in a, a time where, yeah, historical memory is weak. Mm. Um, the attachment to, you know, ancestry is weak, say, amongst in the ethnic majority. I, I think to some degree with ideological polarization, you know, you're getting some parts of the population that are drawn to that, but it's it's relatively small. Uh, the mass of the population, you know, you write identity stories that, that live for them are more around lifestyle enclave mm-hmm. and subculture and, and, and pop culture and these sorts of things. Although there is some framing, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, there's some framing, but it's very superficial. So it could be, you know, it could be white Americans listening to rock and black Americans listening to rap. Or I mean, I know that's no longer exactly the way it works, but these sort of very superficial things like skin color mixed with some element of pop culture becomes your ethnic mm. marker. Um, and yeah, so I think that there is is room then for some of this uh, work of, of historical revival and reconstruction. And, and actually, interestingly enough, actually, that kind of historical revival, I think, actually could detract, could draw attention away from purely skin color, let's say, as a marker. Mm. I mean, if you have got no historical memory at all, yeah. then something like skin color is is more, in some ways, more meaningful because yeah. it's it's something you don't you don't need any history to to, to pick up on that. Uh, you just need the markers. Mm. So yeah, I think there is a challenge to try and uh, inculcate this collective memory to sort of rebuild some of these links to to uh, previous uh, to ancestors of course this then gets into the whole uh idea you know the, the culture wars and and the battle of the books around you know statues and around names mm-hmm. and around all of these things which are being attacked 
in some ways, you could argue that one of the positive things that might come out of this uh, taking down of statues is a, a, a reinvigoration, let's say, of the other side to say, hey, wait a minute, if we actually value this, we have to understand why we value it, why it's so atrophied. And maybe we need to have something like the movements that have occurred with patriotic societies in the past, with historical societies that used to have mass memberships. You know, the uh, American Legion and the, uh, uh, you know, even groups like the Masons and, and all these groups that would have historical reenactments or a lot of those sorts of things have, have faded and, mm. and maybe maybe we need to sort of revisit them. Well, you, you make the point right at the start of the book that um, attacks on the ethnic majority um, sort of go – people don't care about them when the ethnic majority is unchallenged, right? But as soon as its um, majority share begins to dip, you notice that they tolerate that less and less – and I think perhaps when, when you see these attacks on statues and then people simultaneously notice the majority share is dipping, you can imagine that they um, increasingly, um, well, what I'm getting at is is that they, they suddenly go, well, it's being attacked. Well, first and foremost, what is it, right? They need to learn right. what their traditions <laughs> are. You can, I agree with you. I think that I think that you can see that right now where there are a group of young people who are probably delving into things traditions that they previously wouldn't have. And the reason is because they're essentially reacting to um, an attack. Um, I don't want to keep you, like I said, I, I just want to ask one more. I hope that's okay. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that, right, because a lot of the, what I wanted to ask you about is these, these taboos that exist around demography. Um, you've obviously violated them in your book. You violated these <laughs> taboos. Um in a way, like I said, it's very skillful and objective. But um, you sort of, I, I sometimes I think that a lot of people would hear, essentially like a lot of people would, would hear what you say and they would think, oh, okay, we're probably going to become a bit more like Latin America. Like an American might hear what you're saying and think, oh, we'll probably become more like Latin America. And essentially I think you say, well, uh, you know, if you've got to, if we're going to be liberal and democratic, we need to accept that there's going to be diversity and it is going to increase. Um, and now I don't know if you're acquainted with this event, but um, the coup d'etat that occurred in Fiji in the 2000s. Um, yeah, I, where, am. I yeah, am. Where essentially what you had was, I mean, this is your classic civil war scenario where you have two uh, groups, right? Uh, the Indian minority that was brought uh, to Fiji by the British Empire to um, harvest sugarcane. And then the Fijian majority, right? And because there was more of uh, the Indian uh, Indian group actually outnumbered the Fijian ethnic majority and won a democratic election, I'm just saying this for the listeners, not for yourself, and the Fijian people or whatever, at least the military generals, said, well, we've got this democracy thing, but this is they, essentially what they thought was, well, this is our country. So they, what I'm getting at is, they valued ethnic majority control of their, sorry, they valued their ethnic, their ethnicity or their group controlling the country more than they did democracy. Does that make sense? And I suspect that that will happen increasingly where people decide that they value actually controlling the countries that their ancestors built over and above ideals like liberalism and democracy. I think that 
the there are obviously some specificities in the in in the case of say a Fiji where you know you have two major groups and because you have two major groups the coalition will tend to it won't oscillate them. It's generally been a Fijian-led coalition, but this idea that the Fijians were out of power in quote-unquote their own country was a major force, that notion of indigenousness. Mm. Um, I think in the case of Western countries, because you have this fragmented, super-diverse minority population that I don't think you'll get that kind of sense that, oh, we've lost the country, unless you had a situation where Minorities all voted for one party and majority, the majority voted for another party, which is a possible, it's a possible scenario. I mean, if you look at Europe, um, ethnic minorities vote heavily for the left. However, they're too small to matter. And of course, we don't know what they'll do in the future. In the U.S. case, um, in the U.S. case, minorities are are actually shifting quite a bit now to the Republican Party. And Latino divisions. vote in particular, right? The Latino vote in particular? Yeah, but actually all groups. I mean, even the African-American vote is, now it's small, small numbers, but yeah. uh, even the African-American vote as well has a few points started to move towards the Republicans, Asians and Latinos as well. And, and so it's not conceivable, I think, in the U.S. case that we'd have an ethnic conflict where it's I, I can't see a kind of racial coup in the kind of Fiji style. Um, but I do think there is a there was a certainly a sense that the Democrats represented a kind of rainbow coalition, something that was somewhat foreign to the history of the United States. And that's undoubtedly going to play some role, but I just don't think we're likely to see the kind of stark pitched battle mm. that you would in a country where you had these two large groups. And also um, what you said before, um, the fact is that unlike in Fiji, you wouldn't have a white group um, aligned because, like you said, the conflict is actually most pronounced among whites rather than um, yeah, whites and other it's groups. a world... And, and actually, both the right and the left, I think, are willing to certainly willing to work with minority. And they certainly have a different a different view of how minorities fit in. I'd say the 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 left would would see it's it's about multiculturalism. They want to encourage this sort of oppositional identity amongst so-called people of color. And on the whites, uh, white conservative Republican side, they're more in favor of assimilation. And so I think they are, they're, they're very different worldviews and outlooks. And actually they have an appeal. They appeal differently to minority groups. And I think one of the interesting things we're seeing, at least in the U.S. case, is that the progressive intellectuals have greatly underestimated the appeal of that second, more conservative vision to minorities and that as minorities become more confident and established they are actually gravitating towards that sort of more right-leaning vision in larger numbers and and i think that's been a bit of a shock to i think a lot of cultural progressives who just assumed that hey we're speaking up for the weak and powerless and of course they're all fragile and powerless and of course Mm. they're going to want to shelter under our protection and then to see them actually leaving uh, to the other side has been a bit of a shock. And I think that, but, but because um, a lot of these analysts live in bubbles uh, because elite leftists tend to socialize only with those who have the same, the same yeah. political views. 
Um, whereas people who are actually on the left but are working class would have a wider set of, of, of acquaintances. So they would not be in a bubble in the same way. But And likewise, elites who are conservative would almost always have to socialize heavily with those of other political persuasion. Yeah. So you get this kind of bubble occurring on the progressive left amongst elites um, and, and a lot of Democrats, some Democratic strategists like Jim Carville and, and uh, David Shore and others recognize this as a big risk. And so they just can't understand how minorities are might not be fragile and might not want protection. Right. And might not want to just be, hey, part of this oppositional people of color coalition. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of been one of the, the big wake ups, I think, of the last sort of four years. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Oh, well, fantastic. Hey, thank you so much, Eric. And I guess for everyone listening, I just I recommend that everyone goes out and, and, and buys the book Wide Shift because, like I've said throughout this talk, it truly is um, the best explanation for what has happened uh, politically, uh, uh, both in 2015 and 2016. And I think he does an amazing job dealing with an extremely controversial topic so, um, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time, and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, Ross. I saw that it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. And oh, I should just say, by the way, if if anyone's interested, um, my website is www.snapssneps.net, so you can find all my talks and, and writings there. And also, I guess uh, I don't know. I think you're on Twitter. Um, do you want to share that? Yeah, Twitter at uh, E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Uh, so that's my Twitter handle. So, yeah, please uh, give me a follow. And um, hopefully I won't offend you too much. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Aaron.